Welcome to Ship It, a podcast about ops, infrastructure, and five-star quality. I'm your host, Gerhard Lazi, and today I'm joined by Pia Wiedemeyer, lead QA at Zulke. If the name sounds familiar, you all need to go back to episode 28. Thank you, Romano, for the introduction. Do you remember the last time that you used an app, whether it was in the browser or on your mobile, and everything just worked? What about that intuitive feel, snappiness, and you achieving the task that you intended to without feeling that you're fighting tech? Experiences like those take a lot of effort across multiple disciplines. They're designed, built, and maintained over long periods of time. It all starts with people like Pia that really care about quality, and it's so much more than just automated testing. Huge thanks to Fastly for shipping our episodes super fast all around the world. Check them out at fastly.com. What's up, shippers? Adam here, and I want to tell you about one of our new partners for 2022, MongoDB, the makers of MongoDB Atlas, the multi-cloud application data platform. MongoDB Atlas provides an integrated suite of data services centered around a cloud database designed to accelerate and simplify how you build with data. Ditch the columns, the rows, once and for all, and switch to the database loved by millions of developers for its intuitive document data model and query API that maps to how you think and code. When you're ready to launch, Atlas automatically layers on production-grade resilience, performance, and security features so you can confidently scale your app from sandbox to customer-facing application. As a truly multi-cloud database, Atlas enables you to deploy your data across multiple regions on AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud simultaneously. You heard that right. You can distribute your data across multiple cloud providers at the same time with a click of a button. And the next step is try it today for free. They have a free forever tier, so you can prove to yourself and to your team that the platform has everything you need. Head to mongodb.com slash changelog. Again, mongodb.com slash changelog. We had Romano join us in episode 28, and when we finished recording, he told me that I would enjoy talking to you, Pia, about testing and quality assurance. And I'm so glad that you could join us today. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Gerhard. I'm very happy to be here. Okay, so I will start with a clarifying question, because in November, Romano published a very good YouTube video. I love the title. Hey, DevOps, you're killing my job. Maybe there are a couple more exclamation points there, but that was that was the actual title. Great video. And in the beginning of that interview, you say that quality assurance has a special place in your heart. What did you mean by that? Yeah, that's absolutely true. For me, you know, I'm, I'm just passionate about quality. I come originally from the hotel business and I used to work in, in four or five star hotels, you know, the, the really nice ones mm-hmm. where everything is super, super clean and tidy and everything looks perfect. So that's where my my passion for quality comes from. Mm. But I always had this interest in technology, in IT. So somehow it happened that I got to join the the software industry, also delivering high quality software Mm. to our users, for our stakeholders, for the team that drives me, that makes me happy to deliver a good product, a great product. Yeah. So I can imagine what a five-star hotel in Switzerland looks like because that's the image that you have in mind. And I can imagine that. What about the equivalent in software? What does that look like? So when you say quality, that five-star Swiss hotel quality, what does that look like in software to you? That's a very good question. And to be honest, I think I haven't seen it so far. Okay. (laughs) My standards are super high. I see, okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I'm good at my job, you know? I'm not satisfied with medium. So it's a very high bar. That's what I'm hearing. It's a very, very high bar that you have in your mind. So I'm curious, what does it even look like? So that high bar that is very hard to achieve, what does it look like for, let's say, a web app, or you can give any example that you want from like an application or a product? What are the features or how would you describe that? 
I mean, is it how it works? Is it how it feels? Is it the flow? Is it the design? Is it the speed? What is it about it that makes it five star? So to me, it's the combination of of all what you just mentioned and, and probably a lot of stuff we didn't mention okay. and I will probably also forget, but it's not like just it works. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, the, the look, the feel, who are our users at the end, what do they do with our application? Um, on which devices do they use it? There is a huge difference between mobile applications and desktop and, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. And then, yeah, do we, far too often I've seen that, like we build products for ourselves, but not for our users. So we build what we think is cool, but we don't ask the users and then check also what what performance uh, requirements do they have mm-hmm. how they interact with our application yeah so devices i mentioned where in which occasions all that stuff mm-hmm. and then of course yeah our features that we build in they, they just need to function they need to do what they should do but that's like basic stuff to me so the 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 four and the five star or the fifth star comes we have this really like we we make our users happy. We not only happy, we surprise them with cool stuff. Mm-hmm. They didn't know that they would want to have it. You know, I I think we can compare it with Apple. Mm-hmm. They came up or or Steve Jobs, you know, he, he came up with stuff nobody thought about. Mm-hmm. But like a lot of people then said, Oh wow, that's great. I wanna have that stuff. Okay. So if there was an application or an experience, because I think a lot of what you mentioned is more about the experience that users get, did you ever have that experience with a a different app, maybe that you weren't involved with directly, that five-star experience that we talk about, or something at least that comes close to that? I know it's like a very high bar. (laughs) I understand that. Where there is one, just a a funny example, it's my bank where I have my account here in Switzerland, and it's their mobile app. Okay. And they have a funny feature when you want to log out, you can just shake your phone mm-hmm. and then it logs you out. And I just, they just got me with that. This is, you know, that starts, it's maybe not the fifth star, but that's a feature okay. where I feel like, oh, wow, I didn't expect that, but I love it. I always, since I knew it, since, yeah. So something that delights you, I get it. So when you think of five star, it has to have an element of delight in that experience. Something that maybe you wouldn't expect, but something that brings you joy and it makes sense when you use it. So I have a follow-up question. What What happens if you get a large deposit unexpected and you're really, really happy and you start shaking your app (laughs) of joy (laughs) and then you log yourself out? (laughs) 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 It was just meant to be funny. It's okay. (laughs) It's okay. All right. So what about... Things about that app that you mentioned, which is a mobile app, what about if it breaks? So have you ever seen it break or maybe fail for you? I'm wondering if that has an impact on the five-star rating that you would be tempted to give it. Yes, I've seen it fail, but you know, I think with my experience and I've been testing also mobile banking applications, my tolerance is is higher. So I'm not like freaking out when when that app crashes instead my my mom would freak out and think somebody has stolen her money mm-hmm. just because the mobile app crashed so you understand what goes behind the failure and you're more tolerant to them because you understand how difficult of a job it is to keep it running all the time every time so would it be safe to say or fair to say that as long as the failure is expected or at least you understand why it happened, you're more forgiving and more accepting that, yep, things, bad things happen. And you don't have to be up all the time. As long as you're not surprising me in a negative way, that's okay. For me, yes. And I think in general, if we are transparent with our users and um, definitely don't need to share everything, we don't want to scare people. Not everybody is, is tech interested and we are. But um, here and there, a little bit more transparency and honesty with the users, I think, could help. So you say something very interesting. You say that quality is a lift principle. What do you mean by that? For me, when I started in software testing, 
it was like really quality was about a quality assurance was about like me at the end of the process, having to check everything and, and just giving some kind of sign off and saying everything is, is okay. So you as a QA person, your capacity as a QA tester, you need to give that sign off. That's what you mean? Yes. So that's what was the normal when I started in that job. So, so quite some years ago, and I never really like understood why it is like only at the end of the process you you say yeah quality is fine or it's not mm -hmm. so the longer i've been in that job the more i realized no it's a team effort it cannot be that i need to sign off stuff where i first i don't have control of i wasn't involved in in development i'm not a programmer so i cannot judge how they coded stuff so i only have had very small space for what I needed to do. And then I thought, no, that that's just doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. So it has to be like quality is responsibility of the whole team. And we need to think about it from the very beginning and not only at the end of the, of the process before we go live, just quickly have a look. And so this sounds a lot to me like the shift left principle that for example, security teams like to get to go on about how security is a shift left. You should like start it from the beginning of the process. It's embedded in every single line that you write, every single feature that you add. It's not something that you do at the end. And I can see something similar happening with testing. So that makes a lot of sense. And I'm wondering, how do you make that work? So knowing that that's what needs to happen, right? The whole team is responsible for the quality of the software. How do you help the team see that? and apply those principles? Thanks for, for asking that question. And um, I had to learn, you know, I, as I said, when I started or um, for, for the first years being in that job, I was always at the end of the process. And I thought, okay, that's also important, but that's not what I want to do for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. So I really had to make, um, you know, put effort on it, um, talk to people talk to try to get closer to developers get them talking to me mm -hmm. which is not always easy but often i got blocked by by project managers like you're not allowed to talk to developers mm -hmm. all that stuff so it's in every project um still today when when i join i face such situations but i don't stop telling them first like it, it's much easier to um to build in quality than to you know, having to find every little thing and then we have to fix it mm. at the end or we have production incidents, which can cause quite some uh, costs and, and uh, reputation damages, that stuff. So I try to give them its examples. What's the difference if I'm testing at the end or if they let me talk to, to developers, let me get involved in the whole requirements gathering process. I come up with examples and, and the longer I, I work in that area, the more examples I have. Mm. That's cool. I'm super happy that I always find cool people in, in all the different disciplines that support that approach. Mm. So like my tip for, for everybody in a similar situation, try to find that, you know, that, that partner in crime that's on your side yeah. and then you get another one and so and slowly, slowly you get the whole team on board or, or the whole project. Yeah. And then simply what I do, like, like today in the current project where I am right now, I do a lot of pairing with developers. So I said to them, listen, I'm not afraid of, of code. Just give me a hand. Let's pair up, guide me through. And then I will ask you some questions on how you you test it or how you plan to test it. And then we together build up good unit tests, integration tests. Maybe it makes sense to have uh, also system tests. And we decide that together and that really helps both sides a lot. And we learn so much. And I, I really enjoy seeing my developer colleagues growing mm -hmm. in, their, in their QA and testing skills and also like telling others, yeah, now that I paired with Pia, now I know to write better tests and now I don't get this many bugs reported mm -hmm. at the later stage. So that, that's super nice. You mentioned a lot of interesting things there and I have to start asking questions. <laughs> so yeah. what makes a good unit test? 
it's not about only unit tests. I think it's more general. What makes a good test? It's you first have to understand what what's the requirement. What are you building? Mm -hmm. And then you need to think about okay, how can I prove that it's working? So it's like you have some some cases for I don't know acceptance criteria one two three. That's fine. And then most of the times I come into play, then my colleagues ask me, yeah, but yeah, what would be a negative case? And then we just think about it. Or I bring in experience from other projects where, I don't know, I've been working maybe in a similar application. So it's a lot about what you've learned during your career. I mean, there are certain techniques like boundary value um, analysis, or I'm missing the word in English. You can say it in Swiss or German. Equivalenzklassen. I think I know what you mean. So let's see, if we were to explain that, is the Liskov substitution principle, I think. The Liskov substitution principle, which says that you can replace something for something else as long as the behavior is the same. And I have to check this because it's been many years since I did this. I think our English listeners, that's what they're familiar with. So this is for object-oriented programming. Is that what you have in mind, object-oriented, or it's not related to a certain... No. no, okay. So if we substitute a superclass object reference with an object of any of its subclasses, the program should not break. So superclass and subclass. If you replace the superclass with any of its subclasses, the program will not break because the behavior is supposed to be similar. Is that what you think, or do you think something else? It sounds pretty much like this, but there is an official name. Yeah, let's find it. Yeah. Black box testing technique. Okay, that's interesting. Partition testing. Okay. So the first entry is, I think, is similar to what you just explained. Yeah, maybe. So the equivalence partition, a subset of the value domain of a variable within a component or system in which all values are expected to be treated the same based on the specification. Okay, interesting. How did we end up with this term? I'm curious. You were giving examples of techniques to apply, I think. Yes. Good techniques to apply. And you were giving this as a good technique. So you were mentioning about the boundary something, something. Yes. Boundary value analysis. That's also when you're in the testing area, then that's also something. So when you say, for example, between five and 10, this happens. So mm -hmm. five would be at the boundary and then four is below at, and I six see. is above. So that's also a testing technique. Okay, so boundary value analysis and equivalence partitioning testing. So when you have a large pool of test data, you can't test all the combinations and then you select a subset of that. Correct. Okay, that makes sense. So you have those um, classes or like these techniques and that's that's super helpful mm -hmm. because usually, I mean, you, you cannot and it doesn't make sense. Yeah, to, like, it's not practical, yeah. Test all combinations. So that's super helpful. And that's the basic stuff. I thought my developer colleagues, they know that, mm -hmm. but they don't. A lot of them don't. And it's super cool when I tell them and, and say, listen, let's add here boundary value test. And then here also let's check the negative mm -hmm. value. And so and then they're like, wow, that's so cool. That helps so much. And uh, that's cool. Yeah. So it also makes me happy because I thought it's it's basic stuff. Of course, yeah. I mean, you think that other other people, of course, that other people know what you know. I mean, how do you mean they don't know something that you know? I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I forget how I think it's like the Dunning-Kruger effect. I think there's like a, a little bit of that there. Yeah, I hope not too much. <laughs> <laughs> not too much, right. It depends where you land on the scale. Yeah. The point being that experience plays a huge part in this. And you were alluding to that earlier, where you're saying that you can draw on your previous experience to know what to apply when based on similar situations in the past. And you have a good starting point. So you have like a feeling of, okay, I think we should start here. And then let's just like see what the context requires us to do. But many people, they, even though they, let's say they may know all these techniques, it's the experience that comes with it to know what to apply when, why, and how to combine those things. Because once you start combining things, start having like unique test suites, which it's very difficult to reproduce them across projects. But your experience, you can draw on that and see and say, you know what, this requires that. And you can already see the things which are being pulled in based on the starting point. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Okay. What would you say to someone that doesn't want to test? They think that tests 
are a waste of time. Have you met such a person, such a developer? Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, okay. yes. Okay, and what did you do? <laughs> they are out there. Um, there are not as many as there used to be. I'm happy about that, but still there are some people. A lot of people, you know, they have, I don't know, they have, you know, they, everybody's pride a little bit, more mm. or less. Yeah. So sometimes it works when you ask people like, yeah, but don't you have like some kind of um, Anspruch to your, and deine Arbeit. Like a responsibility towards what you do, you know, like what is your, I think, what do you call that? The professional duty, the f not the fiduciary. There's like a word, a specific word that people use. Oh, I'm blanking out now as well. I think some would call it professionalism. And that's like an all encompasses, like all encompassing. It says, aren't you a professional? And if you're a professional, why wouldn't you do things to the best of your ability? Why wouldn't you, you know, go beyond what you think is acceptable and go to, you know, what we as a team think needs to happen? I tried to reframe it. Dictionary? Yeah, I, I, I looked in the dictionary, but it doesn't find the word, the right word. <laughs> I ask people, so don't you have like quality, some kind of quality standard to your own work? So right. how do you know that you've done it correctly? And that's it. Mm -hmm. whatever you developed works as it should work. And then I had some situations where they told me, yeah, but you will be testing it. So you will tell me. Ah, I see. And this is this changes. I see where we're going with this. I think some people call it uh, craftsmanship. So don't you have that craftsmanship to your work? Like, shouldn't it be? Shouldn't you hold it in high regard? And should you be proud of what you do and do it again to the best of your abilities, but in a way that goes beyond like the bare minimum? We're not aiming for bare minimum. We're aiming for that high bar, which we may not achieve, but we will try to go as high as possible. And part of that is me doing the best I can, including exceeding my own abilities. If I have to learn something, I'll go for it. And if you're trying to teach them something, they should be at least receptive to what you're trying to tell them and not say, no, I don't write tests. Okay, so how well did that work in practice? You told them this and what did they say? <laughs> what was the response? Did it work is what I'm asking? Most of the times it works, but I couldn't convince everybody. But it catches the majority. So that's a good enough yeah. okay, approach to take. Very often it's about, you know, people, especially when they are doing this job for a long time already, mm -hmm. it's also, it's strange to them that I don't want to be the one just telling them this is not good and this is not good, that I want to, you know, support them earlier in the process. So they mm -hmm. need to also change their mind in that regard and, and see that, ah, okay, that role of the tester or the QA person changes. And they also need to be open to that. And um, and it works. As I said, most of the people are open to that. And then when they made the first experiences with that new way of working together with testing people, then they are happy and they, they really enjoy, uh, enjoy that way of working. Okay. Hey friends, this episode is brought to you by NetFoundry, the creator of OpenZD. OpenZD is the only open source way to embed zero trust networking into your app. This gives you unprecedented control and security. Give your app superpowers using an OpenZD SDK and a few lines of code, or use their tunnelers to spin up zero trust networking in minutes across any cloud or device. Never face the horrors of VPNs, DNS, inbound ports, or complex firewall rules. No networking engineering skills are needed. OpenZD is trusted by developers at Microsoft, Oracle, Ramco, and more. And if you don't want to host your own OpenZD, use the NetFoundry SaaS, which includes free forever tiers from the 10 endpoints, so you can test things out for yourself at the netfoundry.io slash changelog to learn more and get started. Again, netfoundry.io slash changelog. curious now, what is the connection between a good test suite, and we'll come back to this later, what it means to have a good test suite, which includes all the things, or test suites, plural, everything, everything that is called test in a system. How would you call that thing, by the way? All the unit tests, all the integration tests, all the system tests, black box tests, anything? Yeah, I think it's, it's our test repository, our test library. Okay. 
So imagine that that works well and you have a good test library. What is the relationship between a good test library and deploying software, shipping software? That's very good. Yeah, I, I was waiting for that. Mm, okay. <laughs> the connection is, is very important because I really like that um, how things change in, in the last years to, to say with, with this whole DevOps movement and then people want to, you know, automate stuff more and, and have less manual steps when it comes to, yeah, testing, deployment, mm -hmm. all that stuff. And to me, it's important to have a good test library across all different test levels. Mm -hmm. So from unit test to end to end. And then looking at our deployment pipeline, we need to think, okay, where? Because usually you will have more than one environment. So you don't like just code on your machine and deploy it to production. I hope not. Why not? Because I think you should. <laughs> I think if you're not doing that, something, something somewhere is not as good as it should be. If you have that full confidence in what you write and what you build and you make small changes and you keep constantly like shipping them out into production. So what is the smallest change that I can make which moves this in the right direction, whether it's a feature, whether it's a fix, whatever it is, doesn't really matter. You're trying to learn something. How can I get it out there as soon as possible so that I see whether it actually works? Because it's the combination yeah. of all the things which may be it results in it not working. And the sooner you find that out, the smaller the change, the better your chances for finding the improvement. What make what would make this better? Hmm, didn't work the way I thought it did. The tests are green. Everything worked, but it still doesn't behave correctly. So what do I need? What am I missing? What do I need to learn here? You can only do that in production. Anything else is like a pretend, you know, staging. Everything's fine, everything's fine. And the and the longer you wait until you get into production, the more difficult it is for you to realize, well, where's the delta? Because there are so many steps. But anyways, that's that's my thinking. And I welcome a different opinion because I want to learn why that is. I want to figure out what the delta is. What am I missing? So my wish is also, I'm completely with you, that what you just described is possible. That would be great. Just looking at my experience and where I am right now, I wouldn't take that risk. So we have a lot of homework to do. To get there. To clean up, to get there. But that should be absolutely the goal. So um, I'm completely mm -hmm. with you. But looking at, let's say, um, a bigger project, let's say I, I mainly, most of my projects were in, in financial institutions and big projects. So um, when we look at, at those projects and applications we developed there, we have a lot of dependencies. There is a lot of risk involved. And as I said, if you make mistakes and, and you have incidents in production, severe ones, then, then also reputation is a topic. So coming back to this, okay, how should we combine like our test library, um, which we've designed and built up very clever and smart and combine that with our deployment? Then it's important to me that we think about, okay, which tests do we want to have where on which deployment executed? Where do we want to have hard quality gates. So like you cannot deploy when certain tests are read, which things are acceptable. So we need to define as a team and always be aware of, okay, what, what risk is behind. Mm -hmm. So in the end that we build the process until we come like from the developing machine to the production most efficiently and find as much as possible before we go into production and then, you know, have, have some reputation issues when it's banked and, you know. Have you ever been part of projects where even though all the sign-offs and all the process was okay, failures still happened? Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> so what happened afterwards? What happened when everybody did what they were supposed to do and there were still issues? What happened afterwards? So two different things I've experienced. The first, and, and which I really don't like, is finger pointing. So who's responsible for that? Who didn't do his or her job correctly? Mm -hmm. I really don't like that. So like, for example, when some years ago, when I was in like being test manager and having to give like the sign off. So yes, we've did uh, our tests and from our side, it looks good. Da, 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 we can go into production. And then like day one in production, some severe incident popped up. Then my boss came to my desk and said, Pia, 
why haven't you tested that? What's what's wrong with you and your testers? What did you do then? I mean, that's that's a very, I want to say, very. I'm not sure what word to use because it's, it's it's a really important one, and I want to get this right. So first of all, it's a very unfair situation to be in. It's I think very narrow-minded to approach it like that. It's unfair towards you. It's unfair towards the team because everyone is trying to do their best. And if we made a mistake, it was an honest one. We're not trying to sneak bugs in, right? Our job (laughs) is to find them. And sometimes we don't. And that's normal. It happens. So a person that doesn't see things that way, I would call them narrow-minded and maybe not as experienced as they maybe should be or claim to be or want to be. What did you do in that situation? What did you say? Do you remember? I don't remember what I said, but I tried to protect my team mm-hmm. and go back and see, okay, maybe we really missed something. Could be. Maybe it could be uh, the tests on our side can be, should be improved. Mm-hmm. But also I reported back to, um, you know, development, business analysis, whoever I could get in touch with. Mm-hmm. I tried to, you know, listen how can we prevent that in the future? So I, I try to not take it too personally. But yeah, I mean, there is a reason that I don't work for that company anymore. Right. Okay. That, that's one of the reasons. Yeah, that's one solution. <laughs> you know what? No, <laughs> I'm not going to put up with this. I'm walking out of here because that's not how it should work. And if you don't get it, I'm not going to explain it to you. I'm in the wrong place. So thank you very much. Bye. <laughs> okay, that's one way of approaching it for sure. So I like how you think about this as the whole team is responsible. It's not a person's responsibility. Yes, you will have more experienced people and more senior people. And you'll have maybe people that can see a few steps ahead. But those people will know that mistakes will happen. And I think it's not about not making mistakes. It's about building resilient systems that in the face of mistakes, they will be able to handle those issues as best as they can. I mean, obviously, every system has a tolerance limit. It's not like indestructible or undeletable. There may be some downtime or there may be some data loss. I mean, it it, it will happen at some point and we try to build redundancy in as much as we can. But systems should be resilient so that at the first failure, they don't just, you know, fall over. And obviously, we can't foresee all the things and, you know, we, we learn all the time, but optimize for learning optimize for recovering from failures really, really quickly. That may be only a subset of users are affected. And then you replay some data and there's no data loss, right? Because you have multiple redundancy. There's a temporary data loss, but not a permanent one. You can recover. So what are your thoughts on that? What are your thoughts on resilient systems, on building resilient systems? Not that they don't fail, but they can tolerate failure well. And when there are mistakes, because there will be, they won't fall over. Yeah, very good point. But let me just sure one thing to the previous question. So the second situation I've experienced when we have failures in production is the different thing like, okay, team, how can we improve how we can prevent that? And whether is it like we as a team, as humans, what can we do? Mm-hmm. And really like, you know, this inspect and adapt approach. I think that that's super important and not finger pointing, no finger pointing, mm-hmm. just believe that everybody did his or her best and nobody, as you said, yeah. we, we don't want to just sneak in bugs just because we think it's funny. Yeah. So that's one thing um, which I think is, is super important, just the belief that everybody does his or her best. And then also what you just said, building our system to be tolerant as good as we can mm-hmm. and, and and think about, yeah, how, how can we do that? I mean, I just had like yesterday or the day before a discussion with a colleague in my current team and because we were analyzing some issue last week and it took us so many hours in our team. And in the end, first, it wasn't in our, um, in our area. So another team had to take over and, and they also took hours. But that's a different story. But in the end, we found out the logging was just not there or not helpful the way it was um, implemented. So that's why it took us so much time to find out more or less where the issue could be 
And then still we had to give it to another team because it wasn't our responsibility. Yeah, so I think that that's very important to think about, okay, what do we do if things are down, if there are errors, if we, we want to we wanna know that before the user calls support. Mm. We want to make sure that we have, you know, good monitoring build up and if that we, we have a good logging, which provides meaningful logs to us. Mm-hmm. And yes, have this um, resilience like, um, yeah, that if something is down, that the other server takes over. So, so I think it's a combination of like the team trying to, okay, um, improve as humans and, and as a team together and, and the, the technical part. So what can we do there? And combination of both, hopefully, um, helps us to have uh, more resilient systems. I see. Do you test for that? Do you test for resilience? Me personally, I didn't have the chance so far, but I would be really interested in, in doing that. Because till now, but that's a good point. Probably I, I ask in, in my project if there is a possibility to just, you know, shadow uh, operation people when, when they do that. Because usually yeah. in, in the companies where I worked in, it's with the, the operations department. They do this um, disaster recovery, mm-hmm. how they call it. Yeah. So they do it like, I don't know, quarterly, something like that, usually in the banks. So I would be super interested in that. For sure, there is that side of testing, but there's also what happens to the system when there's, for example, data that it doesn't expect. I have been part of teams, you mentioned banks. A couple of years back, we had security scanners, which would start throwing garbage traffic on ports that weren't expecting them. And then those services, the listeners on those ports, they didn't know how to handle that data and they would crash because they weren't resilient to garbage data. No one was expecting that something on that port would start sending random data. And those security scanners every Saturday when they would run, they would do that. So systems would be crashing every Saturday. And who wants that? Everybody's away, like they're they're like, you know, off. And they have to be paged because these systems are crashing every single Saturday. It was just maddening. It took them a few months to figure out what the problem was. And it took us because we were part of it as well. So I'm wondering about those sorts of tests where the systems are receiving unexpected inputs, unexpected data, something that you don't expect to happen happens, not necessarily from an operational perspective, but from a code perspective. Yeah. So also here, haven't been doing that yet, but also would be super curious. Mm -hmm. I called testers uh, specialized in those areas like security penetration testing, Mm -hmm. um, some random data, so that stuff. I've called those people into um, into one or two of my past projects. But unfortunately, you know, at that point in time, it was more like a box we needed to check. So that was in that company yes. where also myself, I was at the end of the process. And then there came this time when it says, yeah, we need to have some security tests performed. That's the way it worked. Yeah. That's why those situations, I know them because they're very difficult to troubleshoot because it happens so far down the line that people don't even know what is happening like there's this thing no one understands it there's maybe 10 layers 10 different systems no one even knows what they are and there's a behavior that no one can explain good luck digging good luck you know exploring what the hell is going on and it takes you a few months to figure it out because as you know those systems are really complex in banks there's layers and layers and layers and sometimes you are not even allowed to know what those layers are And that makes it even more challenging. You don't have the security clearance to go beyond a certain level. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Sentry. Build better software faster, diagnose, fix, and optimize the performance of your code. Over 1 million developers and 68,000 organizations already use Sentry. That number includes us. Here's the absolute easiest way to try Sentry right now. You don't have to do anything. Just go to try.sentry-demo.com. That is an open sandbox with data that refreshes every time you refresh or every 10 minutes, something like that. But long story short, that's the easiest way to try Sentry right now. No installation, no whatsoever. That dashboard is the exact dashboard we see every time we log into Sentry. 
And of course, our listeners get a deal. They get the team plan for free for three months. All you got to do is go to Sentry.io and use the code changelog when you sign up. Again, Sentry.io and use the code changelog. And by our friends at Rewatch. Rewatch gives product and engineering teams async superpowers. And it helps them move faster with greater clarity. And I love clarity. Imagine this, all of your team's videos all in one place. Record, organize, and share the videos that your team needs to ship great work. Keep everyone in the loop by sharing team meetings from sprint planning to daily stand-ups to project retros. Empower new hires to get up to speed faster with onboarding and training videos that are easy to watch and, of course, rewatch. You can streamline knowledge sharing by creating a library of product demos, tech talks, architecture reviews, and so much more. And we're using Rewatch here at Changelog, and the killer feature for us is every video is automatically transcribed and searchable. And the transcripts are surprisingly very accurate, which makes it so easy for us to search key phrases, terms, and find and play the exact spot in a video. Plus, there's commenting and threaded conversation options on every single video. Now we have a home for all our videos to enable our growing and distributed team to participate in any conversation asynchronously and on their own time. Check them out, get started for free with a 14 day trial at rewatch.com. Again, rewatch.com. So I'm wondering, Pierre, when you think about a good test suite, what do you imagine? I imagine, and some of our listeners probably know it, I imagine a pyramid. Mm -hmm. And there is this automation test pyramid. But for myself, it's it doesn't have to be the automation test pyramid. It's just a test pyramid. Mm -hmm. And we have all the different test levels in there. So starting down below with the unit tests and then go up to, to integration tests. A test and then there comes system tests mm -hmm. and then most of the pyramid pictures end so that's it my pyramid has on top something called system integration okay that's where you really integrate your application with all the surrounding stuff because i i told you i mainly worked in in big projects for big organizations and there you had a lot you have a lot of dependencies and People tend to forget that. And although if you mock stuff before, by surprise, um, well, it doesn't surprise mm -hmm. me, when you then really integrate with the real with the real interfaces, then things just crash or um, yeah, don't work the way we think they, they do. And uh, yeah, and on top of that, I would mention end-to-end -end tests. So this is more like when you look really from a user perspective, going through what, what is our user doing with our application. So you imagine the pyramid, as you mentioned, of different layers of testing. What about how many tests you should have or how long they should take to run all of them? So how many, like looking at the amount it makes, and that's why it's a pyramid, it should stand for the amount of tests you have mm -hmm. in each level. So the most you should have down at the unit test level. They are cheapest there yeah. and you can like whatever combinations you can test there, you should do that on that level and they are super fast. And then going up, you get uh, less and less tests and really focus on what has not been tested before, mm -hmm. what really makes sense to test on the upper level and um, how long they take. And like everything we can, we can automate or with where it's useful to automate, I would go for that because that should be faster than a human. Yeah. If it's not, then if you look at, at some UI end-to-end -end automation, if that takes longer than myself clicking through it, mm -hmm. then something is not good with that test. So we should to rethink if that really makes sense to automate or if we really need that test. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't go for automation just for the sake of automation. But on the lower levels, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And then I expect the test to be Fast. So how long do you think they should take to run all of them end-to-end, -end, all types of tests? The whole test suite, that's how I refer to it. I refer to like the whole test suite, unit tests, integration, end-to-end, yeah. -end, system integration, all of it. Manual, if you have manual. Let's say we have some manual tests because I haven't seen it without any manual tests. And if there were no manual tests at all, then usually we found the stuff in production. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
severe stuff. So let's say we have some manual tests. It would be great, let's say, my wish, half a day, all in all. Half a day, okay. So if the tests take half a day to run, if we use that, so first of all, do they run before you deploy to production or after you deploy to production? And I kid you not, some teams test after they deploy to production. <laughs> it happens. Or at least yeah. I've seen it happen. I would have them running before production. Mm -hmm. But from my experience, it makes sense to have certain kind of smoke tests after you deploy okay. to production. Okay. Just to double check, because I haven't seen a test environment like really being a twin of production. Yeah, it doesn't happen. You're right. Yeah, I haven't seen it either. Maybe it exists, but yeah, I don't know. Okay. So to me or to us, to us too, it doesn't exist. That makes sense. Okay. So if the tests take half a day to run, most of them before we deploy to production, that means that we can only deploy twice a day at most. I think I would say once a day, right? Because I don't think you run the tests as soon as you come in. So the thing which I'm trying to get to is that to me sounds very long because if it takes that long, that means you're only deploying once a day at most. What about deploying once every two minutes or five minutes? I mean, there's no way you can do that because if the tests need to run, they take half a day. It's impossible. I would love to see that. Mm -hmm. So don't get me wrong. That that would be awesome if we come there. It'd be a dream. I mm -hmm. would love it. When I say half a day, this is already quite fast. Yes, because what I've seen, and I think a lot of organizations that have to do clean up a lot of that, looking at test data, infrastructure, mm -hmm. all that stuff, all that in combination slows down our tests, our pipelines. Yeah. And again, from my experience, it always makes sense to have at least like a handful of manual tests, mm -hmm. which you don't want to automate or you cannot automate. I've seen both. Okay. That's also a factor where it's like, okay, it, it takes some time for a human. I'm curious. Can you give me an example of a test that you cannot automate? And I'm thinking about like a real world one, a one that you ran that you could not automate? That's a tough question. I know. <laughs> you can take a rain check on it if you want. We can skip it. It's not a problem. But I'm genuinely curious. Like, it's not a trick question. I'm genuinely curious about the tests, no. about the tests that you couldn't automate. And why? Why couldn't you automate it? Couldn't is maybe like the wrong word. Maybe it wasn't, you know, the effort yeah. it would have taken to automate it instead of having a human doing it. It was cheaper to have the human doing it. Yeah, so so that's that's the test which I'm trying to understand. What is the test that it's that it's cheaper to have a human doing it? What specifically was making that test hard to automate or not worth it? Right? Like it just didn't make sense. It was not feasible to automate it. Like when you have a whole workflow when you go from one application to the other, there not all tools are able to handle that. Mm -hmm. So that was one thing what I've experienced. As long as you have like your, your web app and, and you're only in that browser, everything is fine. But as soon as you need to, I don't know, maybe prepare something before in, in your CRM, mm -hmm. which you have as a desktop application, and then you take that data and go to your browser, then not a lot of tools can handle that. Or the tools that can handle that are very expensive. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. Then dealing with unexpected behavior on the UI. So a human just reacts mm -hmm. spontaneously um, according to the situation. And the robot just waits for some button and, and just runs in a timeout because that button is not there, for example. Right. I made that experience. I wanted to automate stuff on the UI and I was so disconnected to development. And although I told them that I need like unique identifiers for, for the buttons, for everything, they just changed the stuff. And then, you know, my automation always crashed mm -hmm. because it didn't find that button anymore. So it's not you cannot automate, but it's just mm -hmm. so much effort to maintain. And I'm so much faster when I do it myself. Mm -hmm. I think it's not about cannot automate stuff, but does it make sense at that point here, looking at effort, costs, how often do we need that test? Is it like uh, one we, we want to execute with every deployment or do we only execute it like, I don't know, once per quarter or so? Okay, so the way I understand it, it's more about systems 
doesn't matter what type of system it is, systems that are not built to be testable, in that the testing is an afterthought, it's something that happens at the end, and if stuff breaks and testing breaks, it's not my problem. So I can see us coming back to the beginning, where if testing is not on everyone's mind and quality is not on everyone's mind, then testing becomes so expensive that it's maybe not worth doing, right? Because the system just works against it. It's hostile to testing. I would call it hostile systems to test. Who wants to do that? And not only that, but how expensive expensive is it to maintain that test suite, which keeps breaking because the application doesn't care about testing and the test just goes like, you know what? It's just easier to click buttons. I'll be able to respond much quicker than to change my code to test something which I don't know how it's going to change. Okay, so that makes sense. Now it's... It's very, I don't want to say sad because it's unfortunate. That's the one word, one word that I would I would use. It's frustrating. I can, I can feel some of your frustration that we were touching on earlier when you are working with teams that see things that way. Obviously, they have to go through a process as a team before the system is easily testable and the tests are of a high quality because there's also something to be said about the quality of tests, not just the quality of a system. They're sometimes related, but not always. Okay, so... Now that we are talking about bad tests and bad test suites and hostile systems, I'm sure that you have a couple of great examples of to give us of systems which were horrible to work with from a testing perspective. What did they look like in practice? Yeah, well, first off, those systems, when me as a, as a testing specialist, I join a project, a team, and I come there and usually they have some kind of test suite already in place. And very often I see like the test pyramid being upside down. So you have a lot of manual end-to-end tests. You have like, I've seen calculations tested on the UI by a manual tester. Mm. Yeah, it just doesn't make any sense, but um, that's the truth, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. And I've seen seen systems where there were no unit tests at all. Nothing. Yeah, so... And then if there were some unit tests, then they were not transparent so that testers were distracted from development. So they had no knowledge about what has been tested already Mm -hmm. by developers. So they just tested everything again. That that's I've seen that far too often, (laughs) but it's getting less and less. I'm very happy about that. And other things where I tried to you know, I didn't want to do like repetitive stuff. I, I don't like that. That's boring. Mm-hmm. I want to use my brain for the interesting, for the tricky stuff. So I wanted to automate, you know, my the regression tests I did like for every release over and over again. So I wanted to automate them on the UI. And then, yeah, just UI was unstable. My the agreed identifiers, which I used for, for automation, they just disappeared. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the developers, they didn't care or they just forgot about informing me that things changed. And yeah, it's it's like you said before, it's just not built for testability. If you do test-driven development, you know it. And if you don't, you may not know it, but others will, including your end users. <laughs> Stuff breaks all the time. <laughs> People are so fed up with it, like nothing works. Or if it does, it sometimes works, depending on the day, if it rains. It works if it doesn't rain. <laughs> or if it doesn't snow. How did you improve the situation of code bases where tests were an issue? What are like the first three steps that you take with those teams and with those systems? I tried to get like developers and testers on, on one table and really discuss about, okay, where do we, you know, find out the status quo? Where do we stand mm-hmm. and find out what is our test coverage? Do we have tests? Where do we have tests? And the tests we have, do they make sense? Because I've also seen projects where you just have tests to fulfill some coverage, yeah. but they don't mean anything. So I digged in, in one of my former projects. I really sat together with developers. Like we, we rotated like every, every second day, a different one had to sit together with me mm-hmm. and go through another part of, of our system and really dig into, into the code base and see, okay, what do we have? unit tests in that area. And this and it took time, but it really improved so much our understanding of where we stand, mm-hmm. where we where we had gaps. So we could them fill them up. And I, in the end, I could reduce 
most of my manual test cases because I had that transparency. I knew exactly what they already tested yeah. on the lower levels. So I have I have an, an interesting question, or, or at least I think it's interesting. Do you enjoy deleting tests more or writing tests? What do you enjoy more? Deleting a bad test or adding a test which is missing? Deleting. Why? I love it. Why? And, and <laughs> Because I want to focus on the stuff that makes sense mm -hmm. and not repeat things just because I don't have a good feeling. Mm -hmm. I want to have this transparency. And when I have that, then I'm super confident with just, you know, deleting. And in my former project where I could get rid of a lot of manual tests, there were other teams. In every team, they also had um, their testers. And the other testers were like, are you crazy? You cannot just delete that. And I'm <laughs> like, sure, I can <laughs> Sure, I can. Yeah. And if it doesn't work out, if I deleted too many tests, then we'll find out mm -hmm. as a team and then we will improve. But we together take that risk. And I now click the delete button. And, and that was so, ah, that was a great feeling. I love to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think very similarly about that. Like the things which you don't get to do or the things that you get to remove, oftentimes is so much better than the stuff that you add. What is the simplest thing that I can get away with? And do I need this? And if I don't need this, I just get rid of it. Why have it around? It's a liability. It's like those four or five lines, doesn't matter how many it is, it's just a liability. What is the worst test that you ever came across in your career? Do you remember it? I have some examples. Okay, <laughs> so it's more than one. Okay, I like where this is going. <laughs> do tell. Yeah, yeah. So for instance, there is a test library. We have feature files. So we have test scenarios written in Gherkin syntax. Mm -hmm. and it's not only one, unfortunately, mm -hmm. but the, you know, Gherkin syntax, it's quite simple. It's given, when, then. Mm -hmm. So you have given, when, that's it. So I was wondering, okay, <laughs> where does that test go to? What should that I do? See. And then I thought, okay, there is some kind of, it, it gets even better. There is some kind of um, manual description for that in a different test tool. Mm -hmm. So in case that automation fails, if you want to play it through manually, you have a description somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And then I went to that other tool and then I looked at this manual description and there was not even a step. There was only the title. Right. So it's, it's the complete placeholders. It didn't help me to find out what that test actually should do. Right. So there was a mystery test that you didn't know what you were supposed to do. It was there. Did you delete it? Not yet but I will. <laughs> okay, great, great. Okay, that's great. Okay, so a test that tests nothing is one of the worst tests that you can come across, right? Because it just occupies mental space and it adds no value whatsoever. Okay, so that means that if you were to write a test like that, it doesn't test anything, don't do it. Don't add it. Or do, knowing that someone will delete it and they will feel good about it. So I'm not sure which way this can go, but... <laughs> <laughs> See, um, uh, an eternal optimist. That's how you think. You, you can take even like a bad situation and make it, make it a good one. Okay, so as we prepare to wrap up, what would you say is the most important takeaway for our listeners from this conversation? Looking at all techniques and frameworks and tools we have nowadays, they are all super cool. Mm -hmm. But to me, in my experience, it's the people in the end who make the product a success, the project. If you don't have the right people in your team willing to really, you know, work together as a team, then um, yeah, the, the best automation tool or, or whatever framework can't help you. That's a great one. Okay. Well, I, that definitely resonates with me. So thank you for sharing so many great insights with us, Pia. And uh, I look forward to your next presentations. Is there a conference that you'll be presenting to or that you want to present at? I know that DevOps Zurich is coming up, so that's why I ask. Did you submit your CFP? No, that, that's on my list for next mm. year because the week after I will be at the Eurostar in Copenhagen. So that, that's the biggest software testing conference in Europe. Okay. And I'm super excited and I will be talking about from waterfall testing to agile quality assurance. Oh, okay. Okay, interesting. Will it be a recorded one? I hope so. I don't know. Okay. Yeah, but it's planned to be, you know, on site. Um, finally, I hope that will work out. And if there will be a recording, I hope I can share it because I think it's interesting for also everybody not being at the conference. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> Thank you, Pierre, for joining us today. And I'm looking forward to next time. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for tuning into another episode of Ship. Check out our other podcasts for developers at changeup.com slash master. You can connect with like-minded developers from all over the world by changeup.com slash community. Thank you Fastly for the worldwide low latency changeup.com. Our listeners love those blazing fast MP3s. Your beats are awesome. Break master cylinder. That's it for this week. See you all next week. One more thing. I have to mention Lars Wickman's blog post on the fundamentals and deployment. It was a joy to read it, and you can check it out on underreward.io slash blog.html. There is a J in underreward as in fjord. Thank you, Lars, for taking the time. I love bouncing ideas with you. Thank you.